Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 152 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. This week we have three cases, and to hear background noise, I'm at a Starbucks up in Wisconsin. Our first case is from the Indiana Appellate Court, Kreider versus Cancel. Our second case is from the Illinois Appellate First District, Door Properties LLC versus Nalawi, Nalawi, I believe it was pronounced. And the third case is Johnson versus C.R. Bard, Inc. from the Seventh Circuit. Turning to our first case, is there a subject matter jurisdiction in civil court under Indiana law for claims of an allegedly improper fully full body exam for eczema, or must the matter be filed with a panel under the Medical Malpractice Act? Those are the questions to be answered when the Indiana Court of Appeals decides Kreider versus Cancel heard last week. The court summarized the case as follows, quote, Taylor Kreider sued Dr. Jatinder Cancel for battery and intentional infliction of emotional distress she alleges Dr. Cancel touched her inappropriately when she was his patient. Dr. Cancel, who denies any inappropriate touching, filed a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. He argues that Kreider's complaint is governed by Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act and that she was required but failed to follow the requirements of the act before pursuing her claims in court. But the trial court denied Dr. Cancel's motion to dismiss, and he now brings this interlocutory appeal. The doctor claims that in order to determine the propriety of his conduct, requires expert testimony, is required to describe how such an exam is done. The plaintiff intends that how he touched her and where cannot be part of a legitimate exam and that a jury must decide the issue. The justices were very much concerned about the reason the case was filed in civil court and not under the MMA and that the plaintiff's claim would be barred by the statute of limitations if they reverse the trial court. Pat, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan. And this is part of a growing body of cases where uh, the the patient's compensation fund or defendants are asserting that uh, matters are not properly in the circuit court or what what is properly in the circuit court. And so you have a, what you have here is a line drawing problem, as so often the case. Uh, let's take the extreme example that did not occur here. Let's suppose there was a, a, a full-on sexual assault. Well, that plainly is not part of a legitimate medical procedure. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. A doctor, uh, uh, it seems this doctor was a dermatologist or a, or a general care doc, or a, a general, an internist, but either one. Um, let's go to the other end of the spectrum and you have a doctor doing a, uh, a legitimate gynecological exam or a or a, uh, a, other kinds of exams of that kind. Plainly, uh, you know, necessary to do the job of a doctor. Um, and so this falls somewhere in between that. Um, and you have to look at the what generally is the test is, was it for the sexual gratification of the doctor or was it for the legitimate care and treatment of 
the plaintiff, or yes, of, of the patient rather. And the patient in this case alleges that the way in which he touched her and where he touched her and the length of time that he touched her could not have had any medical purpose. The doctor in, in opposition submits, submitted an affidavit uh, from a doctor, uh, shockingly, a female doctor, uh, saying that, that the, the play, uh, where he touched her was appropriate for the purposes of this exam. Now, some of the places she alleges that he touched her, that he denies, um, are places where she says she didn't get uh, eczema, um, which would belie the reasons to touch her in those areas. Um, uh, so it's very, it's very much a he said, she said. And how do you, how do you figure out where this is? Uh, does, you know, is this, um, you could see a circumstance where the court, where the, the jury says, yes, he touched her there, but it was for a legitimate medical purpose. Well, you're right into the teeth of the medical malpractice act that has to be done. And, and the plaintiff doesn't have such a doctor. The plaintiffs were the other strike that the just the judges were asked several times just practical questions. You know, is you know, what does the insurance say about this? Not about this particular case, but says a general proposition. Why not file both with the department and with the, in the circuit court in order to preserve uh, these issues? Uh, they asked directly to the to counsel for the defendant. If we dismiss this, are you going to assert a statute of limitations claim? And she said, I'm going to reserve all of our rights that we have. And then they asked the same question to plaintiff's counsel. Do you expect to get a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter or lack of uh, or breach of the statute of limitations? Says, yeah, because we breached it because we filed in we filed in circuit court. We didn't file in the medical. We did file through the medical malpractice procedure. So it, it, it's a very difficult case to try to figure out where this goes. And, and, and it was clear that this was this was on a motion to dismiss but only after discovery was taken, depositions were taken. Uh, the plaintiff's deposition was taken. The doctor's deposition was taken. He submitted a, an expert report. And then they filed a 12B1 motion uh, under the Indiana trial rules, which is the same as it is in the federal rules, which is a lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Um, you know, generally, we think of state courts as being courts of general subject matter jurisdiction. But the the uh, um, the General Assembly uh, can can curtail that. They can say, you know, workers' comp, for example, or uh, in this case, medical malpractice. This has to go through a particular procedure. It divests the court in some, it, you know, unless you've gone through the procedure of jurisdiction until you've you've gone through the Medical Malpractice Act procedure. I'm going to go through the whole procedure here. It's too complicated. But needless to say, you file a complaint uh, uh, with the with the Department of Insurance uh, through the um, uh, through the Department of Insurance, and then it, they get a panel and, and a whole thing. Now, sometimes what will happen is you'll file in both, which was another thing the judges suggested. Well, why didn't you file both to preserve it? Worst thing that happens, your case gets dismissed, but at least you preserved the statute. They didn't do that here. Um, it, it, it's they they seem very concerned with making sure that the plaintiff gets her day wherever that day happens to be. Uh, but she may not get her day because of where it got filed. Um, she, it, it's a, I mean, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened, Dan. Uh, I mean, the judges didn't know what happened. Uh, 
it's very, he says he didn't do it. She says he did. It's a swearing contest. Uh, and so shouldn't a jury sort that out, it seems. But we'll see where the where the court draws the line. Dan, uh, what, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. We don't know what happened. And uh, so it's a little bit unclear was whether he was doing an examination for eczema, which, you know, she may not have gotten eczema in certain places, but... You know, if it's a, if it's an initial exam, like my dermatologist, you know, looks all over me, you know, for things, you know, even in places that, you know, sun's never shined on. So, you know, yeah, it's, exactly. uh, you know, and uh, I've got one in a couple of weeks where I'll go in and he'll probably do the, the thorough exam and look everywhere. I had and, I uh, had one done last year because I had a friend get a horrible piece of skin cancer. I was on his face and, and, and has had to have a whole range of surgery to deal with it. And it was like... Yeah, I'm going to go get the full exam now, as, as miserable as that was. <laughs> yeah, you know, my father-in-law. Uh, I'll, you know. I'll never forget an episode of House where uh, where a, 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 a person gets uh, the skin cancer on their foot, the uh, bottom of their foot. And it was, it, it apparently, I don't know how much true this is, but at least in the show, it was a, it was a, it was a, black, a person of color, and it was the one area where he didn't have much melanin on the bottom of his feet, and that's somehow got skin cancer there on the bottom of his foot that was causing these range of problems. He was a football player, and yeah. uh, it was causing these range of problems on, on the television show. Okay, yeah. so this yeah. thing's gonna happen. I mean, at least it did on the show. <laughs> and with eczema, you know, my my, my father-in-law had has had bouts of it over over his life, and you know, so. Who knows? Like you said, it's a he said, she said, and uh, this may be uh, an identification again of, of uh, the things we talk about is making sure you dot your eyes across your T's and take all steps that you, you need to take to. We'll certainly get care. to that. We'll certainly get to that in the third segment. We will. <laughs> we will. And before I forget, Pat, I forgot uh, I was going to say it at the beginning, but I want to congratulate you on the Illinois Defense Council being elected as secretary treasurer and uh, being recognized for your meritorious service. And so we look forward to seeing you lead that great organization. Yeah, they're going to have it's it's I got another 4 years before I'm president, but uh, yes, it's a very fun day on Friday and uh, uh, thank you very much. I I appreciate it. All right, so with that, we'll take our first break and come back with segment 2, Door Properties versus Nalawi. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Can a court enter a body attachment? against a party for indirect civil contempt, where the only way to purge the contempt is to pay a monetary sanction that the contemnor claims he cannot afford. I do love that term, contemnor. That is the central question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides, for the umpteenth time, a dispute in door properties versus Malawi. And Dan's going to tell us about what I meant by umpteenth time. Eight years and at least two years and at least two appeals ago, with another appeal related to documents requested from a law firm. The judgment creditor issued a citation to discover assets to collect on a judgment. The contemnor has failed to produce one specific aspect of the documents. 
request number 20. And the court entered a body attachment that his counsel claimed could only be purged by posting $262,000. Counsel for the creditor, judgment creditor, claimed it could not be purged by producing the documents. The order is unclear. Uh, Justice Fitzgerald Smith, plainly frustrated and fed up with the contemnor going so far as to threaten his counsel with contempt, did not seem to have any patience with the situation, while Justices House and Ellis, while equally frustrated by the failure to produce the documents, but expressed concern that the order only allowed the contemnor to pay the sanction. Dan, do we have debtors prison in uh, in Illinois? I don't believe we do, but I kept thinking about it. It seemed like Bleak House or some other Dick Simpsonian type of uh, fact pattern here. Yeah. And as you mentioned, well, Chad, this is a, this is a little this is a little different than the Dixonian situation. This person put himself in this situation. He did. He did. But we still don't have debtors prison. Yeah. <laughs> and the the two hundred eighty two thousand dollar fine is because he spent fined a hundred dollars a day for his contempt. Well, hundred dollars um, for one kind and two hundred yeah. for another. I mean, he's got yeah. he's got them stacked up. He's got them stacked up, and uh, now he can't afford them. Uh, as you mentioned, it's it's uh, request number twenty. Uh, which had to do with a number of other organizations, businesses, etc. Not entirely clear, but a bunch of businesses that he owns or has dealings in that might be connected. They think he does. They're trying they to think find he out does. whether they were fraudulent right. transfers. Yeah. Right. And as you mentioned, Pat, the uh, uh, the ending of this <laughs> bottle, <laughs> he, uh, 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 J- Justice Smith uh, was was, let's just say, uh, he said, you got a rough job, not a case I would want to be working on. Uh, he, uh, he intimated that if, if they're back here again and, and disputing this the Section 20 uh, non-disclosure, uh, which the uh, attorney for the appellee claimed that he uh, was getting it together, he had it, it was all good. Uh, for the appellant, I mean, uh, that uh, they're in the process of producing it and uh, as you mentioned, the issue here is that this thing's been before this panel a gazillion times. Uh, they, they've issued orders. Uh, in this case, uh, the, uh, the contempt order, it's a bit unclear whether the body attaches or whether, uh, it, whether, like you said, the only way you get out of jail is if you pay the fine. Um, and uh, Justice Smith was having none of this. He kept talking about uh, none of this mumbo jumbo. Uh, he uh, right out of the box. I mean, uh, typically this panel, uh, what Justice Smith always tells people uh, advocating for him is you got 15 to 20 minutes to talk. Then we'll ask some questions. Uh, at some point he shut this guy down. He said, that's enough. And then he started going to. Uh, he he uh, even said that over over his colleagues. His colleagues were asking, right. I have heard enough of this. Next, let's right. get out of this. I'm done with this. Right, right. And, uh, you know, the, the appellant's in a tough spot here because uh, the, the appellant advocate is in a tough spot because, you know, he's being sent to court by, you know, we've all had difficult clients and <laughs> just not cooperating. And he uh, he's saying, we've been producing documents all along in this case. And, I don't. I don't even think Justices Ellis or House were buying uh, what he was selling when it came to that. They're like, you know, uh, this, this has been eight years, and uh, the, the, you know, this. Uh, as you mentioned, Pat, this is not even a case. Uh, this is not like the underlying case itself. This is a citation to discover assets dispute. There's which, a judgment. There's a three-quarter of a million-dollar judgment. Right, and and 
as for those that don't know about the citation to discover assets, what you do is you bring the, uh, the judgment debtor into uh, into a situation where under oath, you ask them questions, you can do discovery, uh, you can uh, try to find assets that are uh, recoverable and under oath. Those can include insurance policies. There's a fair number of uh, insurance coverage cases in the cooperation context that arise out of the cooperation in particular that arise out of the citation proceeding where you issue on the insurance company, you have an asset that belongs to this guy and the insurance company says, no, I don't. And they assert their coverage position and litigate it in the citation proceeding. Yeah. And, uh, and then you, yeah, you can, not you the can, favored way to do it, by the way. No, but it does happen. No. And it, you know, I don't know about Pat's, your experience with citations to discover assets might have always been mixed because typically the judgment debtor um, is pretty pretty much a turnip. Uh, I had one situation where we, we brought him in. Uh, we had done some homework. Uh, he owned a, a, a cigarette boat, and uh, uh, everything else was mortgage to the hilt. And when we got him in, he said, yeah, that, that, that's my boat, but uh, you might want to check with the Coast Guard down in Panama because I loaned it to a friend. The friend was using it for drug uh, 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 transportation. It's confiscated and owned by the United States Coast Guard now. And sure enough, we called down to, I think it was Panama. This is back in the 90s before the internet. And, uh, and uh, yeah, they said, yeah, we have it. And, uh, and, you, can have, and you can have it. <laughs> it's, 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 our, it's our boat. And uh, that was that was into that. So, um, but this, uh, I mean, it, it, this was in many ways, uh, I think the, the issue here uh, is, uh, one of the things that Ju Justice Ellis was trying to get at uh, was to get the appellant to confirm that a body attachment is an appropriate remedy in a situation like this, and the, the appellant conceded that it was. But again, that this, the, the issue here is that the order is unclear uh, how this guy remedies it. He can't pay. Like I said, we don't have debtors prison in Illinois, but. Uh, I, th I think the appellee made a very convincing argument, and it's, I think we've had this type of situation before on the show. If, if you can't body attach and the person can't afford it, then what, what is the remedy for a contempt of this nature where it's egregious and been going on for eight years where the person can come in and say, I, I don't have the money, but I also am not producing the documents. It's kind of... Uh, a very difficult situation because you have really then no remedy and there's no uh, stick to be able to use by the courts to get this person to actually take care of business and again my guess is we'll, we'll see this case again in a few months because you know the strong admonition from Justice Ellis, Howes and Smith was your guy better produce these documents right you know this has got to end and I, you know, if I were a betting man, given this, the structure of this case, I would say that the, <laughs> the debtor here probably will not fully comply by, by whatever uh, period of time. And, and you know, the, the, the appellant kept asking, well, what's, you know, what's the timeline or can you give me some kind of thing? And Justice Smith said, you can file the motion whenever you're ready, right? You can let us know that you've produced. I mean, you, you better get this done or you may face yourself in contempt next time we see you, and you may go to prison as well, which is 
as a lawyer, whether it's hyperbole or not, I, I don't ever want to be I in a situation. Find out. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, there, there's, I had uh, Judge Wilson, I'm mind saying it's, it's a, Judge Wilson has a rule that if you don't submit your order by, by one o'clock, it's $500 every half hour. Now, I don't know if he could enforce that or would enforce that. I'm not finding out. I'm getting him the order by one o'clock. You know, right. I had I, I had a case in front of him, and it, it, the, 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 his call starts at eleven. We get done at about eleven forty-five because I was further down the call. I send the order to opposing counsel, and I don't hear back from him by like twelve fifteen. And I got this in my brain. I'm walking to lunch, and I just email. I just emailed to the judge, copy the wire to hear back from him. The next day, he emails me opposing counsel. Says, "Hey, I'm sorry to get back to you on this." I said, "Hey, dude, I copied you on the email to to the judge because." This is his sanction, and I wasn't going to find out what the result was. You know, if, if he was serious about that, I wasn't going to do. I watched my cousin Vinny last night with my daughter, with it, when he comes in and he's got the leather. You were serious about that? I don't. I'm not going to find out if he's serious about that. I'm. I'm going to go with he's serious about it. I'm going to comply with his order to the extent I can. <laughs> I, 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 I'm the same way. <laughs> Try to avoid it. I don't need the fight. Just get him not, the order. Right. So yeah, this is. Uh, I think the real issue is. is the contemnor has to have the keys to his own jail cell and the key right. cannot be money right the key has to be compliance and i think that's how they're going to modify the order to make it clear the key is produce the documents i think so now i don't know what the penalty is going to be <laughs> if he doesn't produce them it's the problem right i don't know <laughs> and, and the other thing on the other side of the ledger the poor judgment creditor has had to spend all this money to keep to get him to get what the court has already ordered him to do, what at least once and perhaps twice. Right. And so, what, where do they get? Don't they get relief? Why do they have to keep spending money on this? Well, they because they think that the guy's you know transferred assets and he has plenty of money. He claims he doesn't, and the, his lawyers relying on a 2017 citation. It's like it's six years ago. We can't right. rely on what he says he had in 2017. We need to find out now. Right. Um, which is why we need these documents. Then we'll ta- then we'll complete the citation, uh, the t- the citation examination. Ugh, what a mess. So anyway, with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Johnson versus C.R. Bear. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at Gmail Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 152 of the Podium and Panel podcast. What comes across in this case? is that the plaintiff deliberately flouted their disclosure obligations in the hope that they would catch the defense sleeping, and they did, that that doesn't put your side in a very good light, end quote. That was the opening comment by Judge Easterwood to counsel for Apelli and Johnson versus CR Part, Inc., heard by the court this past week. The brief, uh, the plaintiff's expert in a case on trial on post-MDL related to an IBC filter changed his testimony from the disclosure that the device was misimplanted by the doctor and migrated downward a few millimeters 
and then at trial testified that the doctor implanted the device correctly and it subsequent, subsequently migrated toward upward several centimeters. This new theory of liability was not disclosed under Rule 26A2A and under Rule 37C1 required automatic and mandatory exclusion. The district court stated, quote, similarly, to the extent that Dr. Hurst, plaintiff's expert, may have provided testimony in a conflict with his expert report, defendant's failure to cross-examine on that point, timely object to his testimony is beyond the scope of his report, or ask for other relief until this post-trial motion constitutes plain waiver, end quote. The jury awarded $3.3 million and defense appealed. The judges were plainly concerned about the conduct of the plaintiff's counsel, but equally disturbed by the failure of the defense to object and preserve the issue. Pat, tell us about this case. Thanks, Dan. And this is really uh, uh, just like, I, I think each of these cases really put the judges in a difficult situation where there are equities on both sides. Uh, Judge Easterbrook quite rightly pointed out, Judge Wood quite rightly pointed out that the plaintiff's conduct in this case was bad. Very, very bad. Like morally bad, (laughs) ethically bad. But the defendant's lawyers screwed up and didn't call him on it, didn't ask for a mistrial didn't move for a a curative instruction, didn't even object, it seems, and didn't cross-examine. Now, I can understand not doing the last two things because then you just highlight the testimony you just heard and does it really really solve the problem, which is why you ask for the mistrial. But they didn't do that until the post-trial. They didn't do anything, apparently, until the post-trial. It's too late. Um, uh, we, We had this discussion a couple weeks ago where do we really punish? It was just, uh, Justice Steigman, uh, and I forget the case, but he was asking, well, you know, wa- is waiver really that strong? I think it is. You can't, and in that case, it was a plaintiff who had screwed up. In this case, it's a defendant who who screwed up. And as and as Judge Easterbrook described it, he said that they were, that they would ca- they hope to catch the defense sleeping, and they did. And that's how he that's how he says it. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it, that's exactly it's like, you know, but that doesn't put your side in a very good light. I don't know whether they're going to be willing to reward that kind of a conduct. I, I, I think in the case that we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, it, I don't think there was, you know, something malicious that had occurred. This case comes across as they did it intentionally trying to sandbag the other side. Now their lawyer, the lawyer for the plaintiff, the appellee, argued that no, they, they made a mistake and they but they didn't do it intentionally and they didn't say you know they didn't intend to sandbag them. That's exactly what they did. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. Um, and it was it was really really not good. Um, and the um, this was the other case we talked about. If you recall, dealt with the same part of the part of the body test and the lawyer actually introduced the evidence. And so that's why it's a fundamentally different thing that the plaintiff did in terms of waiver in, our, in the other case we described than in this case where it was all of the conduct. It was just a failure to do something. It's a different kind of a waiver. Um, and so this is not just me picking sides because I'm a defen- I, I represent the defense bar, interests of the defense bar. I actually see a material difference here. I don't think the result's going to be any different. And I'm not sure the results should be different. Uh, I don't think waiver ha- waiver has to do with the ability of the judge to give the judge the opportunity 
to correct the problem. It goes to the efficiency of the system and the ability of the trial judge to exercise their discretion and decide and, and properly uh, resolve the problem, whether that's a mistrial, curative instruction, uh, you know, whatever, allowing cross-examination, some other kind of sanction that can be crafted that's appropriate for a given circumstance. Um, I think mistrial would have been the appropriate result here, but <laughs> given how radically the view changed and how clear the um, the rule is, rule 37 is, in terms of what the remedy is. Uh, but y- if you don't ask, if we've said before, you don't ask, you don't get. In this case, they didn't even object, never mind asking. Uh, they didn't get to the asking. Uh, there are other issues too, but that's really the one that dominated the oral argument. Um, what's interesting about this case procedurally is Dan mentioned that this was a post uh, MDL. So these there were three bellwether trials. Uh, the defendants went two and one. They lost the first one, then won the next two. And then the cases were sent back to their home districts, the ones that couldn't be resolved, back to their home districts to be tried. Um, I don't know how often that happens. Uh, usually when you have the MDL, the whole purpose is to wrap them all up and get them settled and be done with it. But that's not what... Uh, that's not what happened in this particular situation. This case got sent back because originally the MDL was proceeding in the District of Arizona. And this case, obviously, this case was tried in the Western District of Wisconsin. And that's why the appeal went to the Seventh Circuit and not to the Ninth Circuit um, after it got tried because it was handled in Arizona while it was as part of the MDL. Um, so yeah, these IVC filter cases are all over the We've talked about these kinds of cases before. Um not in the MDL necessarily, but in other circumstances, there's a lot of these. Uh, but you really got to stay. You really got to stay on your toes. And you got to and you got to assert the right. You got to make the objection. And you got to ask for the right remedy. And that didn't happen here. And uh, I, I really think it's going to come back to bite the defendant in this case. Um, there were other, as you said, there were other arguments that they made uh, an instruction issue and another one that I don't think really had much merit. This is this is a the, the issue on the waiver is really the the central the central claim of error. Dan, what are your thoughts on this? Pat, yeah, I agree. A, a lot of rules of the week uh, came through my mind as we listened to this. Uh, one is the like you said the procedural, not objecting, not again pre- preserving the record, which we talk about repeatedly in the show, both in rules of the week we've done, and in just you know some of the reasons that these cases go badly. The other thing that we talked about in the case of uh, Justice Hyman, one of his opinions, the L.Y. words, uh, Justice Judge Wood at one point said, you've used clearly a lot, counsel, uh, like three <laughs> minutes into the appellants, and uh, and he stopped using it. But, she, she, you know, again, it was those sentence enhancers, those, uh, those, those adverb words that, that you and I have talked about that just don't add anything. And, uh, you know, if it's clear she to the judges. She didn't think anything was clear about it at all. Well, right. Like, there's nothing clear here other than you waived it. Right, right. <laughs> and that you're saying it's clear, which, yeah. which again, you know, that it's kind of like it. That doesn't make nah. it so. So, an interesting case. And uh, like you said, I was surprised by the, the, the cases going back to the district. I, I Again, I'm not an MDL expert, so I don't know the full procedure, but I uh, wasn't aware that that's how things went. So, uh, learn something new every time. We yep. do this show, so uh, in any event, very, very, very interesting case. So, with that, we'll turn to our BI for COVID, and we actually have something. You found something, Pat. Found something, yeah. Thank God for Law Three Hundred and Sixty. 
Uh, so the headline I'll read from Law 360, Hilton avoids dismissal of Nevada COVID-19 coverage suit. Uh, the Hilton in Vegas, I think it is, uh, is seeking $800 million from their insurer. I don't remember who their insurer was. And the, uh, uh, the court denied a motion to dismiss. <laughs> which isn't surprising considering the Nevada Supreme Court hasn't ruled on the issue. Nevada doesn't have a, an intermediate level of court and neither has the Ninth Circuit ruled on the issue as we've talked about numerous times. There also was a Seventh Circuit case, the factory mutual, a factory mutual case came down and came down in favor of the insurance company. So there were two this week, as it turns out. Which is, um, yeah. So we'll keep it around. It, it just, it's like on life support, it's just kind of bobbing along. So, well, well, anyway, keep you updated on what's going on there. Prediction sure to go wrong. We were 2-0 this week. Dan is 222-51-14. I am 219-54-14. We got Richards versus Clemens, right, Dan? This is the Traveling Soldier case. Would you tell us about that? Sure. This was, uh, again, the Traveling Soldier case and uh, the... Or, or, uh, or Air Woman, as the case may be. I think she's an Air Woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Air Force. Uh, <laughs> In this case, the, the defendant, uh, uh, the trial court found that the defendant was a resident of Illinois. She had shown a house in Belleville, Illinois, where my wife is from. Uh, she had paid tax on the residence, received mail there, kept her personal belongings there, was staying there. And uh, the uh, uh, appellate court um, reversed uh and said that uh, the trial court erred uh, uh, in finding that she was a resident of Illinois at the time of the incident. Uh, what happened was that the accident occurred in Missouri, uh, and uh, so uh, reversed, uh, and we'll see what happens with it when it goes back. So. Yeah, it's it, it's so it'll get filed in Missouri now, I presume, or South Dakota. Those seem to be the options. They. She was originally yeah. from Pennsylvania, but had, had no ties there really anymore. I think they were saying, well, she's stationed now in South Dakota, and that's where she intends to go back to, so there we are. Um, and and the, the, the reason she was probably in Belleville is that uh, Scott's Air Force Base is in It's very close to Belleville. Yeah. She was posted at Scott Air Force Base, and she had bought a house, but then when she got transferred to South Dakota, she kept the house. And but she lived on base at uh, in in South Dakota. And an oh, interesting thing, I was I was talking to my colleague. His his uh, son is, is in the military uh, professionally, and he uh, has chosen Iowa as his like residence. That's where he went to undergrad or graduate school, and because he moves so uh, military because of all that moving around, they sometimes I guess they can choose where their residence is, but. Doesn't okay. help you in a personal injury case like this. Not really. That was that we discussed that in episode 136. On episode 134, we discussed professional solutions versus Carapathy, and this was a reversal. A a really, I mean, it's a 46-page opinion. 30 is a 16-page, including a 16-page dissent. Um, it, it is it is really a very interesting procedural case, but also it's an insurance coverage case. It dealt with whether another another case of a doctor allegedly acting badly 
This one, whether there is insurance coverage for having injected the plaintiff with ketamine, and the court said the thrust of this is, is the sexual misconduct for which the, the defendant doctor pled guilty for assault, um, and uh, that's the thrust of the complaint. It was criminal, it was intentional, it's not covered. Um, there's lots of our procedural arguments about what the status is of a 622, how it is used or not used in a motion for judgment on the pleadings. Uh, the dissent argues that, I don't know what the hell happened here. Uh, the procedure's all cocked up and she would have sent it back for the, the, the trial court to essentially do it again. Um, so uh, that we discussed on episode 134, uh, an important case, and I would commend it to people. It's also like another case we talked about, the Gibbs case, um, yep. that dealt with an intentional act situation in a criminal situation. Uh, which brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong this week. See, damn, two for two the last couple you of weeks. Don't forget it. Kreider versus Cancel. I haven't a clue. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I don't know either. Um, punt. Punt, yeah, I think it's a punt. punt. All right, yeah. Nawali's getting something. This is affirmed of some kind. It's affirmed, but but uh, like you said, probably a modified order. Yeah. And then Johnson versus C.R. Baird, I think that's getting affirmed, too. I think it gets affirmed. I don't, I, I don't like it, but I think that's probably the right result. Waiver is waiver, and there is it definitely is. waiver here. Yep. Um, so the rule of the week uh, this week, uh, read in the Chicago, or strike that, the Cook County Record, which is a publication you should subscribe to if you are interested in the goings-on in Chicago. I uh, got my email, uh, and there's a Illinois Supreme Court Committee on Equality is considering imposing or suggesting a rule for the use of pronouns and preferred names with regards to both uh, judges as well as litigants and that if a party doesn't uh, throw, uh, misgender someone that they can be sanctioned. I, I, I have concerns. <laughs> I, have, I have concerns uh, about the uh, about it's one thing to out of respect, you should call someone what they want to be called. It's quite another to make me call somebody something uh, special. And because and the, the, the rule apparently is going to acknowledge that you, you use is that you you have to use the proper the, their preferred pronoun unless it makes the brief unable to be understood. What so it recognizes the potential problem that that could occur um, it, it, depending upon the situation. I mean, it doesn't take much of an imagination to to uh, to conjure a, a circumstance where using pronouns, how about this? No, don't use the pronouns. The rule right. says, at least on appeal, use plaintiff and defendant. Uh, use names. Uh, Ixnay on the pronouns. It solves a lot of the problem. It does. Uh, somebody, you know, they, they quoted a law professor saying, call them judge or your honor. Problem solved. There's no, there, there's right. no gender involved in those words. Judge of your honor. Uh, I, I, I don't think that, I think this is a problem in search of a, or a solution in search of a problem, uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, Dan, uh, you had one for us too. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's not entirely related, but it, there was an interesting uh, case uh, that came up. The, the Maryland Supreme Court uh, came out with an opinion. There was a lower uh, court criminal uh, decision 
and they admonished the lower court judge who they said was one of the better writers and one of the better judicial writers, uh, but he compared or likened black defendants to monsters and uh, used uh, literature to say, you know, they're not like the mom and such and such, they're monsters and, and, and bad people. And this was defendants that were uh, African-American uh, defendants. And so the, uh, the court admonished. I think, you know, we've, we've seen, we've talked about uh, decisions and other things, Pat. I think we're going to see more and more kinds of uh, these types of uh, uh, decisions, including the genders and things, the, just because it's coming up more and more. And so just an interesting area. Um, and it was pretty strongly worded, pretty pretty strong admonishment by the Maryland Supreme Court to this uh, lower uh, appellate court uh, judge. It was indeed. It was indeed. All right. So with that, we will take our leave. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.